Well, good morning, and so glad you're here. We're going to wrap up our three-week series on marriage, singleness, and sexuality. And it would seem as though, based on the titles, that it was all about marriage. But if you listened to the first couple of weeks, we addressed singleness and gender and sexuality and, and no doubt marriage and all that plays into there. And so um, this morning we're going to finish up with this and we're going to call it the heart of marriage and see what the scriptures say that the heart of marriage is. Um, there's a classic book uh, written by C.S. Lewis and it's called Mere Christianity. And in this book, uh, I, I'm unlike Terry, I'm not going to give this away. Okay, so if you're here this weekend, I didn't bring this to give it away. I'm going to read from it. Yeah, Ronnie, you're raising your hand. This is my only copy, okay? I'm being selfish. Uh, So Lewis, in this book, he describes two types of love. And the first type of love that he describes is this almost intoxicating, glorious type of love that we would use to describe when we say we're falling in love or we are in love with someone or someone is in love with us. And... It's, it's what we find even in the scriptures in the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, as it's called. It's, um, he writes this. It's this poem in the Bible. It's a great book. And at the very beginning, it reads like this. Let, me, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Right? The Song of Songs. It's this great book with language like that. It's this passionate, romantic kind of love that tastes better than wine. If you have never tasted wine, or if you think it tastes yucky, then you're just going to have to take his word, right? It's better than that, okay? Um, but it's this breathtaking kind of love that, that the scriptures are referring to. At the end of this of the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, he writes this. He says, set me as a seal upon your heart, As a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Those are strong words. Um, It's the language of this, that romantic love here, at least in, in one, this one place, in the Song of Solomon, these words are strong. Romantic love is very strong. And being in love can absolutely, if you are in love, have ever been in love, being in love can bring out the very best in someone. It really can. Um, it can make us generous. I've known, and tender, I've known very... Uh, I'm lost for a word, strapping men, right, that are rough as they get, that are very tender when they're in love. Um, It can make us generous. It can make us self-forgetful. Romantic love is very strong. Lewis, in this book, when he's talking in mere Christianity, I want to read just a section because I was not wanting to type it, and so I I want to read. He, He writes very perceptively about this. He says, being in love is a good thing, but it is not the best thing. 
There are many things below it, but there are also things above it. You cannot make it the basis of a whole life. It is a noble feeling, but it is still a feeling. Now, no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even to last at all. Knowledge can last, principles can last, habits can last, but feelings come and go. And in fact, whatever people say, the state called being in love usually does not last. If the old fairy tale ending, they lived happily ever after, is taken to mean they felt for the next 50 years exactly as they felt the day before they were married, then it says what probably never was nor ever would be true. It would be, a highly, un, it would be highly undesirable if it were. Who could bear to live in that excitement for even five years? What would become of your work, your appetite, your sleep, your friendships, but of course, ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. How can, he, how can Lewis write this? Now, some would say, well, you weren't married when you wrote this, so you don't know what you're talking about. And he addresses that. But how can he say these words? Ceasing to be in love need not mean ceasing to love. Why can he say this? Well, I'm going to say because there is a There's another type of love, and he's going to address it, but there's another type of love, and we're going to find that type of love in the Scriptures as well. Um, And there's a type of love that's different than the feeling of being in love, romantic love, erotic love, falling in love, uh, what we mean when when we talk about in our culture about being in love. That, that, what you have in your mind, different than that type of love, uh, because listen to what he says. There's a Another type of love, and, and Lewis addresses this. He says, love in this second sense, love as distinct from being in love, is not merely a feeling. It is a deep unity, maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit, reinforced by, in parentheses, Christian, in Christian marriages, the grace which both partners ask and receive from God. They can have this love for each other, even as those moments when they do not like each other, as you love yourself, even when you do not, do not like yourself, they can retain this love even when each would, would easily, if they allowed themselves, be in love with someone else. Being in love first moved them to, the, to promise fidelity. This quieter love enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. That's my favorite line, right? It's, it, is on this, it is on this quieter love that the engine, it is on this love, rather, that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. It's this faithful, what I'm going to call today, faithful type of love that's the heart of marriage. You see, in, in the Bible... We, we are going to see that. And this morning, I want to show you three primary reasons. And we'll be in multiple passages. But I want, to, I want to take us to three primary reasons that I see faithfulness is the heart of marriage. If you would, open your Bibles to Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible. Exodus chapter 34. Start at the left. Genesis, Exodus. Exodus chapter 34. Just going to look at one passage and 
because this could be shown throughout all of the scriptures. But the first reason that marriage or faithfulness is the heart of marriage is because marriage is patterned on God's character. It's who he is. He is faithful. And we just get a glimpse of this in Exodus 34. Verse 6 says this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's, it's only one place. But throughout the scriptures, this, this kind of language is used about the Lord, the Lord, a God, our God, the one true God. So you see, this verse, verse 6 here, comes in the middle of a season Moses hears this um, in a season where his people are terribly unfaithful. Unfaithful. And so Moses hears these words in the middle of unfaithfulness. He hears these words. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. I know you're terribly unfaithful, but I'm slow to anger. And in spite of your terrible unfaithfulness, I am abounding in steadfast love And I, I am faithful. We read it in context. Faithful, steadfast love is the heart of marriage because steadfast love, faithful love, is the heart of our universe because it's the grain in which the Lord patterned it by. The faithful God who created marriage calls men and women to show faithful love in their marriages. Regardless of, if that is given back, right? And it's this type of love, this faithful that we're reading here, this faithfulness, faithful love, it's, it's a beautiful love that can exist even when people fall out of love. We don't have to show hands here. But, but and, and listen, I've, I, I'm, I did marriage counseling with a couple one time. In fact, their, their pa- parents were here this weekend for our conference. And... Uh, their son and future daughter-in-law were sitting in front of me and were going through um, a, a book that I use for premarital counseling. And they came to me one day and they said, listen, <laughs> we can't ever imagine there being conflict. Like we love the Lord and we just know if he's a sinner, everything's going to be beautiful. Yes and amen to that, right? So they're about to deliver their first baby. And I'm, I'm not a naysayer of marriage. I'm, I'm going on 19 years of marriage and want it to be until I draw my last breath. And if the Lord wills, maybe I'm 80, 90, 100. I hope he comes back before then. Uh, but there are seasons where life is just very hard. And there are disagreements, right? You, you enter into interpersonal conflict. There's these relations, relational things that kind of have and, or that happen. And maybe in those moments, you don't feel this romantic, erotic, I feel... Like I'm floating off of the ground uh, just a few inches and I want to spend the rest of my days gazing into the eyes of my husband or into the eyes of my wife. Today, I don't feel like loving you. And it is in those moments when this type of love, this quiet, faithful love carries you through. That is the that is the. Long, long stay of the marriage. It's in those moments, that's the thing that carries you to the end, right? Because honeymoons come and they go. And there are seasons that I can tell you after the first few years of marriage where I, 
I felt like we were on our honeymoon again. I did. Man, I'm like, this is so incredible. Those people that tell me the seven years, I remember at seven years, I said this. Those people that say it's seven years when it gets bad work, they're just foolish because this is great. <laughs> I don't know about them, but this is really great. And then there was a 10-year mark. I don't know. We don't have any kind of marks, but, but there were seasons, right? There were seasons when there were three babies in diapers and we didn't sleep very well. And I was, I was irritable. And I was probably not pleasant to be around. And I, I don't want to speak for my wife, but I'm going to assume there were days when she didn't feel romantically in love with me, right? Where we needed this quiet, steady faithfulness that the Lord in his character models for us to sustain us through marriage. I was recently reading an article by a man named Christopher Ash. He writes on marriage very well. And at one point in this article, he talks about a Christian marriage course that was being advertised. And this was the statement that he was quoting. He said, the statement from this advertisement read this way, relationships begin when you fall in love. Relationships end when you no longer feel in love. So love is central, but it is rarely fully understood. This course will show you how to give each, how each give and receive the love you need. It will show you how to keep romance permanently alive. Well, just for the record, that was not our statement for our marriage, singleness, and sexuality conference, okay? Uh, Ash goes on to say, A truer advertisement would have said something along these lines. Marriage begins when you publicly promise lifelong faithfulness. Marriage ends when one of you dies. Faithfulness is central, but it is rarely understood. The course will show you what faithfulness means and how to be faithful through good times and bad. No matter how you feel, it will show you how to keep faithfulness alive. I like that. The heart of marriage, the fuel that lasting, permanent, good marriage is run on is faithfulness because God himself is faithful. So from this moment that Ash is referring to where man and woman publicly promise lifelong faithfulness, right? they enter into marriage, God calls them steadily and persistently to faithfulness until death should tear you apart. And if those of us who are married are to fulfill God's purpose in our marriages, then we must hear and heed the call to faithfulness. We're called to be faithful regardless, single or married. In the context of marriage, I'm saying to you today that marriage requires faithfulness because God in His character is faithful. The second thread of Scripture or this thread that we see in Scripture, um, this faithful love, or that faithful love is the heart of marriage. Faithfulness is the heart of marriage because God is a witness to marriage. The last chapter of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, if you would turn there with me. Go to Matthew and turn back a page or two. Uh, Malachi chapter 2, the last book in the Old Testament. I'm going to read it for us when we get there. And let's see what's going on. There's some Strong words here from the prophet. So in Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping 
and with groaning because he, he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And, and what was the one God seeking, godly offspring? So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to your wife of your youth. What's going on here? Well, in, in verse 13, the people are complaining that God won't pay attention to their religion, to the things that they're doing. They're not paying attention. And in verse 14, the prophet tells them this. He tells them why not. He says, because the Lord was a witness between you and your wife, the wife of your youth, and you've been faithless. She's your companion and you have entered into a covenant. She's your wife by covenant and you've been faithless. So here we see this that on one level, yeah, Marriage is a human agreement or a contract. You know, you you go to the courthouse and you sign a piece of paper and you take a picture and you post it to Instagram or Snapchat or whatever your social media of choice is, Facebook, on Twitter, and you, you know, here it is, and you're signing the the marriage license down at the courthouse and, and you bring that and you you're excited and you give that to the pastor that would marry you and, and you say, Hold on to this please, and you bring it to the, the wedding day and you got to take a, po- a photo, and so you generally done n- a number of these, and you put it on the back of the, you know, the the man, the best man, and you're act- you're signing it, and the husband and wife are there, and and so you take some pictures, but you sign it and you send it in, and the courthouse, they look at it, they they stamp their stamp on it, and they record it, they fold it up, and they mail it back to you, and then maybe you frame it, maybe you put it in a box somewhere, I don't know. It's this contractual agreement, right? And we know, no one in this room would disagree that something happens because if in the moment you leave that wedding ceremony, so you come to a wedding ceremony here and, and Edward or I or a, a, someone, a man of the word, stands before you and, and rehearses the rites of marriage and preaches, teaches from the Bible and pronounces you in the presence of God and all of these people, husband and wife, you know that something happened because if you want to undo it, it's going to cost you a lot of money, right? Something really happened in that moment. And so on one level, there is this contractual agreement, this contract that happens. It happens between two people in different cultures. It happens between families. And it's in marriage, a man and a woman, they make a public agreement to be husband and wife, you need witnesses, right? A witness. Witnesses. You make an agreement to be husband and wife. But here we see another level altogether. The marriage ceremony is not merely traditional. The ceremony we see here from Malachi takes place in the presence of God himself. Don't miss that. Marriage takes place in the presence of of God himself. And so we could pause for a moment and say to singles, listen, marriage, for those of you that desire to be married, that are hoping one day to marry, right? Um, I have, there are of all ages in here, I have little girls that are dreaming about their marriage, right? They're, they're thinking about what that day will look like and what that young man will look like and hairy-legged boys and we're praying for them already and 
And, but don't miss it even now. Right? That marriage, this thing that happens, this ceremony, is a contractual agreement that happens, but it happens in the presence of God Himself. And the making of this co- covenant is witnessed not only by your friends and family. You invite people. You want them to be a part of this, right? To celebrate with you. Weddings are great for that because you want to throw a party. I think it's a, forced, it's a, it's a shadow of a party that's to come later. That's another sermon. But you want people to come and witness this, right? And so in the presence of all of the witnesses, friends and family, they're gathered there, but it's also witnessed by the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God Himself. You stand in the presence of the Lord. And that's why at the very end, though it be said quickly, I say in the presence of God and all of these people that have gathered here, I pronounce you husband and wife, right? Because God Himself witnesses. When two people promise to be husband and wife, When they take the vows of matrimony, God stands as a witness and he holds each of the parties responsible to keep their promise. We could take that all the way through to the Old Testament, right? Or to the New Testament, rather. That we should be oath keepers, right? Your yes is yes and your no is no. Don't swear by anything else. You keep your word. The promises are made under that sanction. And if the parties break them, they are answerable to him. That's what we're reading in the book of of Malachi. I doubt that these people would have received a very friendly reception if they would have replied with this. Well, we had to, to divorce because the feelings of love had cooled and I've fallen out of love. Right? So the heart of marriage is faithfulness to a promise. Faithfulness to a promise, not going with the ebbs and flows of romance. Romance comes and goes, and we work on that. I've been very quick to say that week in and week out. Stare and gaze into the eyes of your spouse and plan a date night and go, you know, work on communication skills and conflict resolution and all those kind of things. But at the heart of it, it's faithfulness, romantic, erotic love, desire. That stuff is profoundly important. Um, But at the center, the the beating heart center of this, um, it is faithfulness. It's how God made marriages. The heart of marriage is another type of love. It's faithfulness. It's faithful love. One more place. Mark chapter 10. Keep turning to your right. The second book of the New Testament. Mark chapter 10. Faithfulness. This is the... The third play, third reason and a character we see in God. Faithfulness is the heart of marriage because God joins husband and wife together. So Jesus here in Mark chapter 10 is being asked to weigh in. Some guys come to him, they ask him to weigh in on a debate that they're having about divorce. And when he weighs in, look at verse 6, notice what he says. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
This is important. Whatever therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's affirming this gigantic and this enormously important teaching in Scripture about marriage. And it's this. At a wedding, something is created that did not exist before. At a wedding, something is created that didn't exist before. One man is leaving a a husband, a mother and a father, and they are being joined to one wife. Two individuals become a couple. Two are made one flesh. The man and the wife are fused into this single organism, if you will. It's not this, it's not this will happen over the long haul. No, what he's saying here, God is joining this man and this woman together. It's not magic. It's a miracle. Truly a miracle. It's something miraculous that God does at a wedding. And that's why weddings are very special. Because yes, there is a physical thing that happens, right? You see, you smell, you hear all of the sights and sounds of that day. And I get that those things need to be to certain degrees important for depending on the couple. But there is a much deeper significance of the day, the one that carries to the long haul. And it is this miraculous thing that happens. And it is God is joining a husband and a wife together. At a wedding, God joins you together in marriage. It is his act and not yours. And this is the underlying reason why it's not yours to break up. Because God joins it together. Not you, but him. And so it's not yours to break up. Now there's two caveats to this. Um, I believe the Christian perspective, the Christian position is that this applies to every married couple without exception so long as they are validly married, one man and one woman, according to God's definition of marriage in the Bible, Christian or non-Christian, I believe this applies. Because the hope is that the non-Christian would be converted, and the answer is not that once they convert that they would divorce to find another Christian, right? So this applies to every marriage, one man and one woman joined together where they have agreed publicly by promise to take one another as husband and wife, God joins them together. They might be a different religion or of no religion. Uh, They may or may not be what we would say is compatible. It may be even a marriage of convenience. Right? But if they publicly consent to be married, then they are joined by God. I've been asked this before. I think... I think I married the wrong person. <laughs> Are you married? Yes. Then you, you're married to the right person. You need to stay married. Well, why should I say that? Because it, it, on, at first glance, it seems they're incompatible. And, and here we have a recent convert. And here we have a, an unregenerate, not born again individual. And so, golly, I, I've married the wrong person. We didn't even know about Jesus Christ. Will you stay married because God has joined you together? And we spent the whole week in unpacking all of that. But you stay married and you remain faithful because it is God's character. It's the grain of the universe. And he has joined you together. The second caveat, um, and I, re- I pointed to this, but this joining together by God is not something that happens gradually 
as the marriage relationship grows, a kind of glue that slowly sets. It's not gorilla glue and it takes you leaving it set up overnight for it to stick. It's not that. Under the right conditions, it happens when the vows are made. I believe that God, as a witness on that day, one man is truly joined to one wife, not in magic, but in a miraculous act that only a sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, generous, gift-giving, gracious, full of love, rich in mercy, full of grace God that could perform. Could perform. Man and woman. So you may think that you put it all together to come that day, but I'm saying to you, based on what the Bible would teach us, and we could unpack this in private conversation, but that what happens on that day is not because you saw some girl coming in to buy an ice cream cone at Dairy Queen, and you said, I need one of those. Maybe that happened, but what I'm saying to you is that God joined you together. And so there, even in your marriage and even in your relationship, you say, to God be the glory. Right? It's... It's remarkable that God would allow us to tear apart something that he joins together. You ever thought about that? I don't know if you know anything about divorce. I come from a divorced home. My parents have been married multiple times. And I know the devastation of divorce. I have counseled with families, couples on the brink of divorce and those that are in the middle of divorce and those that have filed for divorce and those that are recovering from divorce and all in all the stages. And I know and I've thought often, God, you, I believe this. I'm not just saying this because the, I, I believe this, that God joins one man and one woman miraculously together, and yet he would allow us to destroy that. It's quite remarkable, actually, that he would allow us to do that to something he has put together, but he does. But if we do, make no mistake about it, that we have God against us. That's what Malachi tells us. And Jesus says that we must not pull apart what God has joined together. Jesus says that himself. The Son of God says, God himself in the flesh says, listen, you do not pull apart what my Father is joining together. And so divorce is not the unforgivable sin, but it is a sin. And we can't soft pedal that. We can't. At the risk of offending, I can't say to you, because I do care about marriages, I can't say to you that divorce is not a sin because it is. And I believe that so much so that I've had the conversation with my own family. And it's cost me. But the word stands on its own and it doesn't need us to back it up. And the word tells us that God has joined one man and one woman and for us to never tear it apart. No one should tear a marriage apart. And nor should a husband or a wife put their career or their comfort or their personal fulfillment or their own desire ahead of marriage. They shouldn't because that will destroy a marriage. We have got to do all we can to nourish and to build up our marriages because they are unions made by God. Right? So God is the point. And so we do those things, not so that we have a better marriage, right? But because they're by God and for his glory. Do you, do you see how even your marriage is really not about you? That is absolutely freeing for me. <laughs> it 
Because if it's about me, it's very hard and it's very painful. It's more, it's more difficult, rather, and it's more challenging. But when I am fully aware that God joined Stacy Nicole Walsh, right, May 30th, 1998, God joined Stacy and Josh Lewis together at Central Baptist Church in Bowie, Texas at, I think, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I can't remember the time. That what happened that day was not that that Dr. Paul Henderson, right, he did go through the rites of matrimony. He did counsel us, and he did pronounce us husband and wife. And so a contractual agreement happened. But what really happened on that day is that God himself joined her and I together. And so he did that. And so if I am more concerned about my relationship with him, then my marriage is stronger because he joined it together. And it's not mine to tear apart, and he won't tear it apart because he's faithful. And so the, the more I am focused on him and my relationship with him, my marriage is stronger because God is going to shore that up because he is faithful. So pleasure and delight deepen and even enrich a marriage. Pleasure and delight in each other. But they cannot be its foundation. Faithful love is the heart of marriage. Let me just give one pastoral word of encouragement. I don't use that phrase often, but if divorce lands on you heavy, it's not the unpardonable sin. It is a sin. And for sin, there is a promise in the scriptures. There are many. There are many. But 1 John 1 is a very easy one to remember. 1 John 1 9 is a promise to those who would offend God. And he says this, if you will confess your sin, he is faithful and is just to forgive you. And not only to forgive you, but to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Right. And so he doesn't he doesn't forgiveness is that you need to know this truly about forgiveness. It's not that he just takes you back to zero, right? He fills you up because if you are a Christian, he has imputed, he has put into you his righteousness. And so it's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. And so you live this life in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. That's Galatians 2.20. So you can, it doesn't give us a pass. Should we sin so that grace can abound, Paul would say, and he says, may it not be so. But he also is the one that says, we live by faith in the Son of God. And so what that means is, if today you hear me saying divorce is sin and you are divorced, and you've never confessed that sin to God, and you've never repented before Him, then do that, because He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you. And then Romans 8, 1 would tell us there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But you need to confess your sin to God and acknowledge it as such. And we don't, we don't hold you in condemnation, right? It doesn't mean that we think less of you or of you more a fewer times or less often? No. We would say that about any sin. If we were teaching on greed today and you were in this room and were a greedy person, I would say that greed is sin, 1 Corinthians 6 says. And if you've never confessed that sin to God, I would offer the same pastoral promise. So if you're offended, please don't be. Be convicted. And let the Spirit of God do His gracious work in your life and make you whole. Faithful love is giving here are some things that I, I 
pulled out about faithful love. It's giving, it's forgiving, and it's preserving. And then we'll be done. Faithful love is giving. And what do I mean by this? I mean that faithful love gives sexual exclusivity to your spouse. When you have faithful love for your husband or for your wife, you will offer yourself exclusively to your spouse. Whether that is in the virtual world or in the physical world. Faithful love is giving. It means that that it gives and serves your spouse in practical ways that your spouse needs to be served. Your spouse needs to be served different than mine. I need to be served differently than some of the men in the room. And so faithful love gives and serves in practical ways. It gives the emotional kindness that your spouse needs. It's giving. It's not passive. It's not cold. It's active. Giving is an active response. And so faithful love is giving. It's not passive. Faithful love is also forgiving. Faithful love is marked by forgiveness. The Bible gives us many stories of marriages, both good and both bad. From Adam and Eve to Abraham and Sarah, David and Bathsheba, and on and on. All of them, one way or another, are stories of dysfunctional people in very spoiled relationships. But forgiving, it shows forbearance towards the other when they fail to give us what we are promised or implied in marriage. We forgive, right? Because faithful love is forgiving. To say that the heart of marriage is faithful love means that a husband and a wife must learn to live together in the forgiveness of sins because without forgiveness, no human fellowship least of all marriage, can survive. Think about it. Have you ever been offended in your marriage? Singles, you will be offended in your marriage. The relationship does not survive without forgiveness. And listen, if you're a long way from marriage or God's called you to singleness, you need to have faithful love in relationships because your relationships will not survive without forgiveness. And they will not survive without giving. Because at some point, people will say, man, They are always taking and leeching. I don't really enjoy being around them. You need to give. Forgive. And thirdly, faithful love is persevering. Faithful love is marked by perseverance. Everyone who has been married in a church has made a public promise to stick together, right? Till when? Till death do you part. That's right, Calista. She knows. She said it. Till death do you part? Now, there are places in the scriptures where God has, has seems to give pass for divorce. But at the heart of marriage, love is faithful and it perseveres. We're not giving passes today. We're saying that faithful love is, is full of faithfulness. It, is, it perseveres. It's an aspect of this love. I want to close with this. Marriage is a gift God gives the church. He does not simply give it to the married people of the church, but to the whole church. You need married couples, you need to know this, and singles, you need to know this. That marriage is a gift to the entire church. It is a gift designed not only for the benefit of the married couple, it is also designed to tell a story to the entire church, a story about God's 
relationship with us. The Apostle Paul unpacks this. Terry referred to this this weekend, and it is this mystery, but it is putting Christ and his bride on display, the bridegroom and the bride. So it is telling a story about God's relationship with us. God makes covenant promise to us, and he keeps them without fail. So he is faithful in his character, even when we were faithless. The book of Hosea is a beautiful, beautiful picture of this. He makes promises as the bridegroom of his people, his bride. And he keeps those promises that he has made. And so marriage is in the church. Your marriage is telling a story. You're telling a story to those around you. Christopher Ashe says this, The story in the Bible is the story of one utterly faithful spouse and one persistently faithless spouse. It is a story which shows at the same time the misery of adultery and the wonder of costly faithfulness. All who struggle with a difficult marriage need to enter into the pain and persistence of God himself as he struggles with his difficult marriage. I would say to you, if you are in a difficult marriage, then at the center of Christianity is a cross. And I've said this before, but we have to adopt a cruciform theology. And so we enter in, like Ash would say, with the struggles of God himself in a difficult marriage. And we take up our cross and we bear it faithfully. Revelation 21.5 tells this, tells this, you don't have to turn there, tells this great story, great story. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven for, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be them, be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. It is one of the most basic affirmations of the Christian faith. The world will end in a wedding that leads to a marriage where every pain and sorrow and tragedy is removed. And a wedding without tears and death and mourning and pain. The marriages in this room, like everything in life, are marked by loss. We have those that have lost spouses in this room, children in this room, tears, difficulties, But that does not mean that the marriages in this room must be tragic. You see, with the faith in the husband of the church, looking forward with hope to what we read in 21, 1 through 5, to the final and perfect wedding, the marriages in this church can be a sign and a foretaste, a foretaste of the joy of that marriage that is to come. That is forever. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, there is much here. But at the end of the day, may we, may we know that marriage, the pursuit of marriage, all of these things, the, the heart of marriage is faithfulness. Because you have given us that pattern. Because you are a witness to marriage. Because you join one man and one woman together in marriage. And in that we are to tell a story for the world about the true husband of the bride, the church. So I pray, Lord, for those in this room that are not a part of your bride. They're not a part because they don't call you Lord. They don't see you as husband, as head of their life. And so I pray today, Lord, that you would open the eyes, that you would grant repentance and give faith. Father, for those in this room that in this moment feel the weight of divorce, I do pray, Lord, that there is that they know the end of that shame because, of, because they are in Christ. And where they are not in Christ, Lord, I pray that that would be so today. And that they would know the promise of your word of forgiveness and no condemnation. And that for those that have never experienced divorce, that are single, newly married, or long-time married, we heard testimony this weekend of 30 years of marriage ending in divorce. I know 20-plus years of marriage in my own family ending in divorce. So none of us are beyond that, Lord. May we be convicted by the fact that you are a faithful God. Faithful to us when we were terribly unfaithful. And you keep coming unrelenting at us with love. So may we be a giving, forgiving, and forbearing partner in our marriage. Because we want to model the husband of Christ in our marriage. Father, would you do your mighty work in this place and use your people to be a city set on a hill. For the good of your people, we pray today, and for the glory of your Son, Christ. Amen.